Thanks very much, and good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany, both here in the sanctuary as well, across the street in the chapel, as well online. Let's take a moment, we'll pray together, and then look at this text. Father, thank you that we enjoy the privilege of gathering in your name. We uh, trust and ask and pray now that your Holy Spirit would teach us, that we'd be responsive uh, to the revelation that you long to give us. Father, our desire is to follow you, and may we encounter you this morning through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, in order that we might live into the adventure that you have for us, and in order particularly that you might shape us to be people of hope who are empowered by you to be a blessing in our families, in our, in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our world. Thank you, we pray this in Christ's name, amen. I just returned from uh, speaking down in Southern California this week, and the uh, first day I was there, I was walking to supper, and I saw a guy and he goes, Richard, do you remember me? And immediately, I remembered him. And I said, yes, I do. You were my favorite Bible school student ever. Like I teach in four or five of these a year in different places. And I've been doing this now for 25 years. So that's a lot of students and a lot of classes. I said, I'll never forget because you made a profound difference among the men at this particular Bible school in Austria back whenever it was. And then he said it was 2001. And this was the guy, uh, you may have heard me sh share this story before, where uh, he, he and a buddy of his got all the male students to write poetry every week, and they'd gather in one of the dorm rooms and read their poems to one another. Like, who does that? That's like <laughs> amazing. And it created a camaraderie amongst them. And then eventually the women were pulled in too because they were jealous, so they started their own poetry night. And then, uh, hang on, my phone is warm for some reason. And, and then, uh, so they created their own poetry night, and then, but, the, but the guys that was better, and the girls would sneak into the guy's room and hide under the beds and that kind of thing so they could hear the male poems. It was just this kind of fun, like I've, I've never seen ever like this sense of there wasn't a click, not any. No one felt left out, not a single student. It was remarkable. So I said, yeah, I remember you. And, I, and then I said to him, remember I said to you, you're called to ministry. I said it to him back in 2001, because he was so, such a leader. You're called to ministry. I said, what'd you do? He said I became a business major. Wow, what a disappointment, right? <laughs> but uh, it started me thinking about this notion of finding our calling. And I'm gonna just say to you, this is probably one of the most important subjects that we collectively face, and each of us individually, we have to find the life for which God has uh, created us, and everywhere I go, that's the subject. What's my calling? How do I find it? Down in uh, Southern Cal this week, there's a guy moving from the desert to the city to help plant a church. He's quitting his job. He doesn't know what he's going to do in the city, but he's living into his calling. Empty nesters wondering what they're going to do with this next season. They're trying to find their calling. Uh, I, a young man asking a question, should I devote full time to writing or should I become a professor? He's asking questions about calling. When I'm around here, people are asking questions about calling. It always, one of the most profound fundamental questions that people are asking is what am I supposed to do with my life? And, and honestly, I hope we never stop asking, no matter how old we are. So, uh, this story, this encounter with Christ, addresses some very important issues regarding how each of us can find our calling. And what I want you to see uh, in our time together this morning is 
that there are challenges, three of them in particular, related to finding our calling, that uh, uh, are revealed in this story. And these challenges that Peter faces are the challenges that we face. The first is the challenge of obedience. The second is the challenge of unworthiness. The third is the challenge of redirection. Challenge of obedience, challenge of unworthiness, challenge of redirection. We're going to look at all three. Now, this incident that uh, was so beautifully read for us comes after uh, Jesus had taught and Jesus had been teaching from a boat that the fishermen had just left. And, and then we enter into these challenges. So let's look, number one, at the challenge of obedience. If you have a text, uh, follow along if you'd like, Luke 5. If you don't, just listen. And I'll read this because here's what happens. Uh, Jesus was standing by the lake and he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of the boats and they were washing their nets after a night of unsuccessful fishing. So Jesus gets into one of the boats uh, which was Peter's boat, and asked him to put the boat out a little ways from the land, so that ostensibly so he could see the crowd. And then he sits in the boat and begins to teach people from the boat. When he finished teaching, he said to Peter, uh, put out into the deep water, let down your nets for a catch. And then, and then uh, Peter answers and says, Master, we worked hard all night, caught nothing, but I'll do as you say and let down the nets. Okay, we'll stop right here. Here's the first challenge, challenge of obedience. So here, here's the deal. Uh, Peter had a bad night fishing, which unusual even now in this region, almost entirely unheard of then. Like that you would catch nothing, just doesn't happen. But he caught nothing. And then they're cleaning their nets. And now here along comes a preacher who's now going to tell a fisherman how to fish. And that's annoying if you're a fisherman, right? I mean, wouldn't it be? It'd be like me saying, telling Scott, hey, let me give you some acting advice, buddy. I mean, Scott's, Scott's an actor. And, and then Scott would be polite because we're friends. But I know he'd be thinking, stick with preaching, right? <laughs> Others of you are less polite. I, you know, I pontificate about biology. And, and, and then and I, there's a biologist in the third row. And he's polite as well. But I wonder sometimes... And I hear it directly, often, right? Hey, stick with, stick with preaching, you know, because I, like, I can only do one thing. So I guess that's the one thing I'm supposed to do. And so here, uh, Peter actually doesn't believe that Jesus understands fishing. He doesn't believe it. Uh, and he, so he doesn't want to take the blame for what they're about to do because, look, their nets are already clean, so he knows, this, in Peter's mind, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go out, and it's not just going to be a waste of time. It's going to be a double waste of time because uh, now, uh, basically, what he's saying, I think, sarcastically, is, okay, Jesus, since, you know, since you're Jesus, we'll go fish again, strike out again, clean the nets again. It's a double waste of time. It's not only fishing again, it's cleaning the nets again. And we've already cleaned the nets. And yet, here's the thing I want you to see. Though Peter is filled with doubt, if not outright cynicism, this is the sermon in the summary. Peter obeys Jesus, period. And this is worth noting because it's not wholehearted obedience. It's obedience with a caveat. It's like Jesus saying, yeah, I'll follow you, but I'm warning you in advance when this fails, it's not my fault. I'm telling you, we already tried and caught nothing. So, okay, you want to follow you, I'll follow you. Don't blame me uh, when we strike out. So, obedience, reluctant, doubtful, cynical, 
but still obedience. Why does this matter? This is faith. This is faith right here. Uh, <laughs> go back to the Old Testament. God is delivering Israel out of slavery, and he does this thing called the Passover, where Israel's taking a sacrificial lamb, they're killing a lamb, they're draining some blood into a bucket, and then they're painting the blood on the door. And then the, one of the most important phrases in the whole Old Testament is this. God says, uh, regarding this kind of angel of death that's going to be hovering around, uh, he, he says, God says, when I see the blood, I'll pass over. In other words, subtext, I don't care how the blood got there. I don't care if your faith was 10%, 20%, 50%. I don't care if your faith was uh, faith blended with cynicism, faith blended with doubt, faith blended with anger. It was probably a blend because nobody's perfect. But I'm telling you, when you do the thing I've asked you to do, you're doing constitutes transformative faith. You want to be transformed? Obey God. That's what I'm telling you to do. And, and fine, you have doubt blended in with your obedience? Good. You, so does everybody. Remember in the New Testament, that guy? What does he say? Jesus says, hey, all things are possible if you believe. And then here's this guy, so brutally honest. I believe, and next phrase, help my what? Unbelief. I believe, and I doubt. Oh, really? Which is it? Yes. It's both. Like, yeah, I believe, but I also, but I also doubt, and it's okay. Because the proof is in the doing, and this is why I get annoyed with this um, bumper sticker. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. It's like, we, you know, you see it on a car, and you go, oh man, you must have perfect faith. You must never doubt. You must think that, you know, every time God says to do something, you're like this, yes, I will, and I know it's going to be amazing. I'm not that way. Are, are, are you that way? Please, come, preach. <laughs> because I wish somebody had perfect faith, but here's the reality. All of us are a mixture. Faith and doubt, faith and cynicism, faith and fear. So when God says something, you do it, but you're not sure you want to. God says, move to Seattle, you move. God says, uh, leave Seattle, you leave. God says, have the hard conversation, have it then. Begin to practice generosity, then begin. Forgive that person who wronged you, then forgive. We think that only wholehearted obedience cuts it, but the reality is that short of being perfect, none of us offer wholehearted obedience ever. Our obedience is usually a blend of obedience and resistance. And the resistance could be doubt, as in the case of Peter here, or the resistance might be, I don't feel qualified, as in the case of uh, God calling Jeremiah, and he says, look, I'm not qualified to be a prophet, I'm too young. Or God calling Moses to be a leader and Moses saying, I'm not qualified to be a leader. I don't speak well. Or it may be uh, not resistance or doubt, but simply unwillingness. God says to Jonah, go north. And Jonah packs his bags and goes south. Why? Because the bottom line for Jonah, I don't want to go. But he eventually goes. And so the point here is, uh, my obedience is... There's a, it's an admixture, it's a cocktail, right? There's, there's obedience and doubt, or obedience and fear, or obedience and ambivalence, or obedience and cynicism. But the beauty of the gospel is this, God is looking for your obedience, and your obedience is what constitutes faith, period. James 2.20. Like, faith without works is dead, but the good news is, your work, even if it's blended with doubt, constitutes faith. Do you think when these guys put the blood on the door, 
uh, in, in Egypt, they all had 100% certitude faith that some angel of death was going to spare their children. Are you kidding me? Some put it on the door because they liked Moses. Some, some put it on the door uh, because Moses said to do it. Some put it on the door because there was nothing else to do. They were bored. They had no TV or internet. And so, okay, we'll kill a lamb and paint the blood on the door, whatever. But the point is, God didn't say, when I see a perfect heart, then you'll be in my story. God said, when I see the blood, that's it. That's faith right there. And now you're in God's story. So let's talk about this just for a minute. Because there's, there's kind of two challenges to developing this obedience mentality. Challenge number one is this. A lot of people think they have faith because they've given mental assent to some key doctrines. Oh, yeah, you know, and we, and we sing it, don't we? You know, I believe in the resurrection, the virgin birth, the coming of Christ. But they never change their actions. And James, uh, chapter 2 in the New Testament, James said, that's not faith at all. Uh, giving mental assent to doctrine is not the Christian life. Such people may be religious, but it's a false pride because they're not living on the basis of faith because faith means this from God's perspective. Show me the blood. That's faith. Show me your nets in the water, Peter. That's faith. Show me the reduced credit card balance. That's faith. Show me tithing. That's faith. Show me the time spent in conversation. That's faith. Show me forgiveness for that person who wronged you. That's faith. Show me uh, stepping into service. That's faith. Show me if God's calling you to go to Rwanda with us in, in a couple months here. Go. That's faith. Like, faith isn't mental assent. Faith is hearing God and obeying. That's the way it is. That's God's definition of faith. So that one, of, one of the challenges is we live in an intellectual world and uh, we believe, because we so highly value education, that gaining kind of intellectual apprehension of doctrines is what the Christian life's all about, and it's not. That stuff is only in order that we might actually live differently, but the living differently requires steps of what? Obedience. And that's where faith is. Second challenge, though, if the first challenge is kind of believing without doing, there are other people who do, but think that because their doing is blended with a little bit of fear or doubt or reluctance, it isn't real faith. And so there's people kind of busy doubting their standing with God because of a false sense of shame and condemnation. Like, they're doing what God's asked, but not wholeheartedly, and so they feel unworthy, and then they, we'll see how this plays out in a minute here, then they can kind of step out of the game. And for them, the answer is the same. What does God say? Show me the blood. Show me the nets in the water. Show me that you're reducing your credit card balance. Show me increased generosity. Show me forgiveness. Listen, uh, steps toward God of obedience without full faith do you know what God calls those steps without full faith? Steps of faith. Like it's still faith, even if it's not full faith. Because God's credit here has never been the amount of faith. It's always been the object of your faith. And so if God has spoken and you're stepping in, whatever, how much doubt you have, it doesn't matter. You're still kind of, you're in, right? I believe in airplanes, like quite a bit. Pretty confident that the Boeing people do their thing and the Alaska Airlines do their thing. And so yesterday, you know, when we're flying home from Southern California and, my, and we hit some massive air pocket, we drop 
you know, 150 feet, and this lady screams. I'm like, this, don't, whatever, don't scream. Like, aerodynamics wins every time, right? And, and I don't worry about it. She worried. Here's the deal. We both got to Portland. Like, oh, not enough faith, you know, and she sucked out of the plane. No. Because, she, look, she, her, she had enough faith to what? Get in. Do you understand? And then God took it from there. Like, oh, man, some of us are like, oh, I can't take a step until I have full confidence. Really? Who lives that way? Most of us are taking steps without full confidence. And those, are, those, from God's perspective, are called steps of faith. So, uh, you know, when God says to do something, you, you do it, even if you're filled with questions. When I went to seminary, the prayer was, you know, where do I go? Is it Boston? Is it, is it Illinois, like Wheaton? Is it Portland? Is it Los Angeles? And I certainly had desires, certainly had desires. We prayed, and I was certain that in praying, kind of revelation would come, and we'd get to move back to the Pacific Northwest, and we'd go to Portland. But as we prayed, and we did our due diligence, the one, I'll tell you, in the back of my mind, the one place I didn't want to go was Los Angeles. No offense if you're from there, but whatever. Uh, it was like this. Four, there's four reasons not to go. Smog, heat, traffic, and Dodgers. That's it. I don't want to go for those four reasons. And then when we prayed, it was like, nope, you're going, you're going to Los Angeles. So, we, you know, we got the U-Haul and we packed the stuff and we went, we went not wanting to go. It's still faith. It's because why? There's obedience. I, do you hear me? So that's the first criteria. Response to revelation is the bottom line. Not what you think about the revelation. Not how much doubt you have. Peter doubts Jesus' counsel here. Doubts Jesus' ability to give fishing advice. Definitely doesn't want to put clean nets back in the water, only have to wash them again after they're empty again, but he does it anyway. Why? One key word. In verse 5, Jesus is called by Peter this, master. That's what he's called. And because he's called master, it's that, it, Peter understands his relationship with Jesus vis-a-vis -vis Jesus is this, Jesus is master, that means I'm under him. That means when he speaks, I'm gonna make every effort to follow. That's, that's what it is. So master means, uh, Peter understands his place, doesn't mean he will never doubt, doesn't mean he'll never fail, he'll fail often. But it means this, his vision, his vision is this, he's seeking to listen for the voice of Jesus and respond. That's his vision for his life. What's your vision? Retire early? Bigger house? I don't know. Maybe it's a bigger vision. But I'm, I'm going to challenge you to say, whatever is your vision, if this isn't the first thing, like upstream, before your particular vision, if the first thing isn't calling Jesus master, you're probably, you probably don't have the right vision. Because really, the only thing that ultimately matters is this, what does God want me to do? And I want to do that. It's because Jesus is master. So we have, to, we have to start there. The challenge is to, for us to let Jesus run the show, and that only happens when we're listening and obeying, right? So, so that's the first thing, for, is the challenge of obedience. Second challenge is the challenge of unworthiness. Because here's what happens, verse 6, they, so they put the nets in, 
I'm going to read this now. Uh, when they'd done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. And then so they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. So now a second boat comes out and they came and they filled both of the boats with fish so that the boats begin to sink. Now, I'm just, let's just stop here and make a couple observations. This, is, this story cracks me up because the success that Jesus brings actually creates collateral damage, right? Their nets break and their boats sink. And so if I'm Peter, my first response is like this. Thanks a lot, Jesus. Great. Like I obey you and now my, like my livelihood, it's, I don't know if you ever saw that Frasier where that little guy's newsstand burns to the ground. It's that, right? In my attempt to help, uh, I make things worse. That's kind of how it feels here. And, and, and so, like, I just wonder why Jesus couldn't have just given Peter a decent catch. Why did he have to do overkill, right? Uh, and, and, and as a result, the boats are sinking and the nets are, are destroyed. Like, why does Jesus do that? A couple options. Number one, maybe that's so that they can sing that song. Do you remember it? I have decided to follow Jesus. What? No turning back. No, like, I can't go back. Can't go back to fishing. Got no boat anymore. Okay, I guess I'll follow you. Awesome. That could be, that's maybe one reason. Maybe so that uh, Peter knows, hey, don't worry about the future. I've got you covered and more. Maybe Jesus just likes to create good stories for the Bible. I don't know. I don't know. But whatever the answer, here's what we know. It says here in the text, amazement had seized Peter, verse 9. And I love that language. Amazement seized Peter. Uh, in other words, the text doesn't say this. Peter stirred himself up and became amazed. Or Peter knew that he should feel something profound, so he conjured up amazement. Or Jesus had everybody sing, and now everybody became amazed. No, 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 no. Watch this. Amazement is the byproduct of paying attention to what God is saying to you and responding. And I think I can say this on pretty good authority from the text and from my own life. When you pay attention to what God is saying and you respond, eventually you're going to be amazed. Because the story that God writes uh, in the midst of your, your following Jesus, the story that God writes is always a better story than you could write. Always, 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 always a better story. Not an easy story as my friend in the second row could testify. Not a, not a story uh, with, a, with a straight line of success, as my friends in the first row could testify. Uh, not a story without disease, as my other friends in other places in the room could testify. But always, when we pay attention and respond, the results will be amazing, and we'll look back on our life and this is what we'll do. We'll say, whoa, look what God did. Look what God did. Not look what I did. Look what God did. Because you can only experience God when you obey God. Until you obey God, God's a theory. And this thing that you're doing right now will eventually wear thin for you. You'd be bored with it. You'd be like, yeah, whatever, don't like it anymore. And then you begin to pick at stuff. Oh, you know, the music's too loud, too soft, more hymns, less hymns, communion, the gluten-free isn't gluten-free enough. I need, you know, carrots or something, whatever. Like, we can just, and we, we go, yeah, the building's too cold, too hot. Hey, listen, if you're amazed, then you're like this. I'm amazed. And like, why are you amazed? Not because this was awesome, 
The preaching isn't awesome. The music isn't awesome. It's okay. We're, we're okay. What's amazing is God. And so obey God and you'll be amazed. Don't obey God and you'll be bored. Eventually you'll be bored. Like we don't come here to put on the Super Bowl every Sunday. We come here to point you to Christ so that you can hear, obey, and follow. And that's where the amazement comes from. So that's the kind of the deal. So pay attention so you can hear God, because until you hear God, you won't respond. Pay attention to the Bible. Pay attention to what you think God is saying to you specifically, what is God speaking to you about. Maybe it's money, maybe it's vocation, maybe it's relationships or time or hobbies. In other words, make Jesus master and then pay attention and listen and then respond and the results will amaze you. Like you will come to experience God as provider only when you give. It's the only way. You'll come to experience God as a source of abundance only uh, when you pour yourself out. You'll come to experience God's strength only when you step into something that's going to make you weary. You'll come to hear God's voice only when you listen. So, like, if we listen and follow, we'll be amazed. But then, in this text, there's, there's also a dark side to the amazement. And the dark side is this. So, we followed God, but we followed God with a little bit of... Um, a little bit of fear, a little bit of doubt, or even in our following, we're still not perfect. And, so, and now God is blessing us, even though uh, we're still this admixture of faith and imperfection. And, and, and what happens to Peter here is, oh yeah, he put the nets in, but he put the nets in not believing anything was going to happen. So there was obedient faith, but not kind of faith that was actually confident. Does this make sense? It was still faith. But there was doubt in it, so that when the nets were filled, what happened? What happened to Peter? This is what he said. Depart from me, Jesus. I'm unclean. In other words, Peter's conclusion to this story is I am not worthy to be in God's story because I don't have perfect faith. My faith is, is an admixture of faith and doubt. I, I'm not worthy. Well, listen, Peter's not alone in that feeling. If you go to Romans 7, here's what Paul says, verses 21 to 24. And many of you know this text, but this is the great Apostle Paul, like who we all kind of put up there on some kind of a pedestal. This is what he says. Uh, the good I want to do, what? I don't do. The bad I don't want to do, I do. Uh, I, it, we, inwardly, I have this vision of myself always on top, right? This is, like I'm in traffic and... and this guy cuts me off and I pray for him every time that he'll be blessed, you know? And, and, and when there's not enough money, I just give more, you know? And, and when my wife offends me, I just fall to my knees and I say, how can I serve you? That's not Paul. And it's not you, it's not me. Rather, Paul says, I know what's right. I know when this guy cuts me off to pray for him, but I don't do it. And, and, and so Paul says that, and, and, and the necessary conclusion from Peter's perspective is this, I'm not worthy. Paul's conclusion, Romans 7, is a question, and it's a better conclusion. Here's Paul, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And the good news is this, if you know you're wretched, you're in good company. Paul knows he's wretched. If you know you're wretched, the good news is this, uh, God has an answer to the question, who will deliver me? And the who is who? <laughs> Jesus. So it's okay to know that you don't qualify. 
Like if I don't actively see God, don't actively pay attention to what God is doing in the world, don't actively challenge myself with the possibilities of what could be, if I call Jesus master, then I don't need to worry about unworthiness. But if I'm seeking to follow God, watch this, when I seek to follow God, I see a gap between who I am and who I'm supposed to be. And that gap is discouraging, but I need to see the gap. You need to see the gap. Because if I pay attention and see the gap, I, I, then I feel unworthy. And I, and I say, man, why is God using me? And that's a good question to ask, right? But the temptation then is this. We pull ourselves out of the game. We say, oh yeah, you know, I don't, I don't have faith like, and we make compare ourselves to somebody or whatever. I don't have faith. And, we, and then we feel unworthy. And now the, the, the biggest problem is never our sin, we who follow Christ. The biggest problem is our failure to deal with sin properly because sin leads to, often leads to shame and condemnation and neither of those are from God. And it's the shame and condemnation that put us on a shelf, like we self-select out of the game and, we, and we're no longer in God's story because we don't feel worthy. Who's worthy? No, no one. All through the Bible, right? You know, Abraham, what a great guy other than, you know, sleeping with a maid and lying about the identity of his wife a couple of times so that she'd sleep with other men. Uh, you know, or Jacob, who, who uh, was, was a deceiver and, and stole the blessing and dressed up like his brother and, you know, lied immediately. And Judah, who slept with his daughter-in-law, not even knowing it was his daughter-in-law, thought, thought she was a prostitute because she had a veil on. Yeah, these are, this is God's favorite family in the Bible. Look at them. Who's worthy? No one. So, it's a challenge, right? We feel unworthy. Now, what, how does God deal with us when we feel unworthy? Well, that's the third challenge. We've got to get over ourselves and let our lives be redirected. How? Watch that as this thing ends. So, what does he say, Peter? He says, depart from me, I'm sinful. It sounds so holy, right? Like, uh, I'm unworthy, I'm a sinful man. And I love Jesus' response to Peter's unworthiness. Because, he, first notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, oh no, Peter, you actually are very worthy. Like I've been looking at you and here's, you know, third, like this would be a, like a web blog post. You know, 13 qualities that makes Peter great. There's, he doesn't say anything. Like, oh no, no, let me tell you how good you are. There's none of that. Like this is not a therapy session here. Oh, you know, your problem, your problem, Peter, is your self-esteem, man. You just got to hug yourself in the mirror every morning and... You know, tell yourself that, you know, you, you're, how worthy you are. It, it doesn't even matter. He doesn't, he doesn't debate the issue of Peter's worthiness. And by not debating that he's unworthy, he's actually agreeing that he's unworthy. But here's the good news. He says, oh, you feel unworthy? It doesn't matter. Follow me. Right? So he redirects Peter's assessment and it's, it's this way. I'm, I'm moving you, Peter, away from self-assessment to confidence. Anytime there's self-assessment, it's either going to be pride, because I'm going to kid myself into thinking I'm killing it, or it's going to be shame. Anytime it's self-assessment, it's pride or shame. So Jesus just sweeps that away and says, don't even worry about yourself, man. Who cares? And here's his answer. Don't fear. That's this all-encompassing statement considering the circumstances. You think you're unworthy to follow me? Don't fear. Do you worry about leaving your nets and fish, uh, finding a different source of provision? Don't fear. Uh, do you worry about the outcome of this new mission? Don't fear. Do you worry that you'll fail? Don't fear. Do you worry that you're not perfect enough to be on God's team? Don't fear. 
Peter, listen, I'll be with you when you succeed and when you fail. When you're faithful, when you deny me. When there's outward fruit, when there's no fruit. When you're tremendously encouraged, when you're discouraged, I am with you. Don't fear, keep following me, right? Because Peter, hello, it's not about you. So the situation began with a dissonance in Peter's heart kind of between what could be and what was. It could be a boat of, of full, full of fish that was an empty boat, and the dissonance is the context in which Jesus speaks to Peter. He says, look, uh, Peter, empty boat, it could be full. Get out there and take this step, and we'll, now there will be a new thing. And, and then he says it again, take another step, because now that your boat is at the bottom of the sea and your nets are broken, you're going to be fishing men. So there's a dissonance. You're here, but you could be here. And that is exactly how our calling is discovered. Dissonance. I have a friend who's climbed the corporate ladder. He's at the top, and he's bored out of his mind, hates his job. That's dissonance. I have a friend who's about to retire, and he's terrified. Doesn't know what he's going to do next. That's dissonance. I have a friend who's a student, about to enter college, uh, doesn't know what she's going to major in, dissonance. Talk to somebody down in Southern California who's following her calling but not seeing any fruit, dissonance. Listen, dissonance is like, that's where God speaks to us, so pay attention to dissonance. It's actually a very good place to be. We hate dissonance. I do too. I want everything to resolve immediately. No. Dissonance is where we wake up and listen. So I can bring this to conclusion here. What God is trying to teach us through this encounter with Christ are two things. Pay attention to Christ. He's the master. And when he speaks to you about an area of your life, respond. Pay attention, respond. Say it with me. What? Pay attention, respond. Those two things. You want to live the Christian life? That's it right there. Volumes written about discipleship. But this, it, listen, it all comes down to those two things. Pay attention, respond. Um, I told you about this guy, my favorite Bible school student, right? Businessman. And I said to him in 2001, you're called a leadership man in ministry. You're called to it. A business major. So later in the week, we're eating. I go, what are you doing now? He was preaching. Yeah. What happened? Right? Oh, you know, I did business for two years and I couldn't stand it. So I went to seminary. And now he's, he'll actually be up here in October. I hope you can meet him. He's, he preaches all over the world. He paid attention to dissonance and he responded. Listen, uh, all of us need to do that. We need to pay attention. And, and so in a minute here, as we bring this to a close, I'm gonna pray. But later when we respond, this is, I'd love you to use these prayer books and if God is speaking to you about one area, just write that word. Because that's, that's the first thing. Pay attention. What's God speaking to you about? What is it? Hidden sin? Your marriage? Your job? Your money? Your future? Your parents? Forgiveness? What's God speaking to you about? And maybe God has even given you the second step and showing you clearly what he wants you to do. Then great. Respond. Too. And maybe write down, this is what I'm going to do. But at least write the word. What is God speaking to you about? It's very important. I want you to know I read these things and uh, pray over them. And when you come and share in that way, it helps 
our whole community know that God is speaking to us collectively. Even if nobody ever reads it, they know, oh, God, God spoke to you. That's good. That's a good thing. That's why we do that. Um, this week, I was speaking down in uh, Southern California, and often speakers can develop a sense of immunity from our own speaking. Does that make sense? Like we do this so often. And, and uh, so on Friday night, there was a campfire, and the, there was another guy, another pastor, who said, hey, maybe God's spoken to you this week about something that uh, you need to put an end to in your life. And if so, then just grab a stick and go throw it on this campfire, right? And I'll tell you what, I, um, this was, it was just, for me, it was a pretty powerful moment. Because right when that guy said that, the Holy Spirit revealed something in me. And I'm not gonna share it with you, it's too personal, but an attitude that nobody knew about, not even my wife. An attitude, a thought, a thought pattern, really unhealthy. And I, and I knew, man, I gotta deal with this. I have to deal with this. And I took the stick and I, and I, and I went and I put it in the fire. And I won't give you all the, uh, you know, the outcomes of that, but I can tell you, when we respond, then this trajectory of being more fully in God's story begins to unfold. And the results, amazement, amazement. Because here's what happens, we look back and, and we don't say, oh yeah, it was another Tuesday, what a great day. No, no, this, we look back and we say with humility, look what God has done. Don't you want that to be your story? And here's why I so desperately want you to respond even this morning. Because if you respond, watch this, if you respond, um, then you're in God's story. And if you're in God's story, then you are representing Christ to others. And if you're representing Christ to others, then others are being blessed by you. And if others are being blessed by you, then they're able to respond. But if you, if you don't listen and pay attention, that whole chain evaporates. And people will, there are people who will never be blessed by you because you weren't listening. So let's pay attention when Jesus says, put, put your net in the water or whatever, and respond. Father, meet us now in this moment uh, of response. We give it to you. Give us ears to hear. What, are you wanting, what one thing are you wanting to address in our lives? May we have the grace to respond. We pray in Christ's name, amen. The way we do this now is uh, the ushers are gonna come, they're gonna receive the offering, and so I'm gonna invite the ushers to come at this moment. As soon as they begin receiving the offering, uh, you can, you know, give as you're led to, and, or give, if you give online, just pass it by, of course. Put your cards in the, in the basket, maybe. But then, um, also then, Eric's gonna invite you at some point to stand, and then you can come and, and write the word that God has spoken to you. This is what I need to address. And so let's be responsive this morning as we worship together.